The word of God, which is eternally true. For the choir director, according to Judithan, a psalm of Asaph. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Selah. You have held my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Seal it. Then I said, it is my grief or my weakness, my infirmity or my sin that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind, the lightnings lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. I've preached this uh, psalm a couple of times over the years that I've been working as a pastor and I went back and looked at some of them, and it was interesting because in the old days, what I would do is I would talk about how some of you have had a death, some of you have had a, a, a divorce, some of you's husbands or wives have left you, uh, some of you are sick, some of you lost a job, and so here's a psalm for you, a psalm for those who are in terrible difficulty. And now that I'm older, I realize I don't need to bring in adultery and death. Because the truth is, as we age, we don't have to have any excuse at all to lie in our bed at night unable to sleep with horror in our minds and hearts. Now, why is that? Well, one of the main reasons is that our own sins, as we get old, grow on us kind of like... uh, Uh, you know, kind of like the crust on a cesspool. It calcifies, you know, and it just, it, it, it stinks. And this is how we age. This is how we age. Christians age that way, not just unbelievers. Christians age that way. 
And how do I know this? Well, I know this because the Apostle Paul says as he gets older, what? He says, I am the chief of sinners. That's the Apostle Paul. And so as the Apostle Paul describes himself as he gets older as the chief of sinners, and you're lying in your bed at night saying, I can't bear my sin. We don't have to be abandoned by our husband or wife. We don't have to have lost a job. We don't have to have a child that's in rebellion to lie in our bed at night and just say, I can't bear my sin. And the interesting thing is that when you get into that condition, what happens is there's no way out. And you say, well, yes, there's a way out, Jesus Christ. And I say, I know that, but God allows us to go into that position emotionally because he loves us. This man, Asaph, is recording the normal Christian life. (laughs) And I'm using the title of Watchman Nee's book. The normal Christian life is not the higher victorious life that you have been sold as a bill of goods. There was an excellent sermon last night where the pastor kept hammering the issue that Jesus didn't come to make us healthy and wealthy. You know? And so you say, well, yeah, that's true. We all reject the health, wealth, gospel, right? But how is it that we have bought the gospel that, forget the money, that every day in every way the world is better and better? That we're cheerful, that we're happy, that we're seated in the heavenlies. In other words, we have the same health, wealth, gospel. It's just a little bit different. And it is that a true Christian living by faith will not be discouraged, will not lie in bed at night with his sin overwhelming him. When the Bible shows us exactly the opposite. The Bible gives us many prayers in our prayer book, which is the book of Psalms, many prayers that have the author suffering under the weight of the decadence of this world, and the weight of their sin, and the weight of the sins of their best friends that they used to worship next to, who have now abandoned them and are no longer in the house of God. And as you get older, you're very aware of all the chairs that are empty that used to be filled. Mary Lee was saying to me this last week, Well, I don't know if I can say that. (laughs) Anyhow, it was very helpful, and I wish you could be told what she said, (laughs) you know. But, But she was just commenting about how God has consistently disciplined us by taking our friends from us. They fall by the wayside. And so think of this psalmist, and what does he say? My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. And so in worship, it's not simply that we should be crying in joy and anticipation of heaven. It's also that we should cry aloud in pain. I remember, you've heard me say this, at a previous church, 
I would say that probably the second most intense anger that my elders board had against me was one night, one day when we had communion and there was a terrible sinner in that church and he was so much under the conviction of sin, his own sin, that he cried out during the Lord's Supper. And the elders were so angry at me. Now, mind you, I hadn't asked him to wail. It had never occurred to me that he would wail. And he wasn't anywhere near me. It was a big church. But you know how I tell you that in most churches, the elders tell the pastor that his job is to protect them from the Holy Spirit. Have any of you heard me say that? In other words, Tim, shut him up. Why? Because he's wailing. Well, isn't that good? Didn't the psalmist just say, I cry aloud, and isn't it clear it's not a positive cry? Well, yes, but it shouldn't happen in a worship service, and it's your duty to keep it from happening. Now, mind you, he was not disrupting my sermon. It was actually during communion. He's under conviction of sin. It's during communion, which might be a time when you would be under conviction of sin, seeing the body and blood of our Lord and seeing your own sin. This man went on went on in his life to utterly destroy his marriage and his children. Utterly destroy them. And so that cry, I'm convinced was the cry of a man that saw hell coming to him and was in despair. But I didn't know at the time that's what it was. I was hopeful it was repentance. But I think it was despair now. And I think, you know, here's an idea. Let's have one place in the world where men under conviction of sin may cry aloud. You know? And you say, well, if it's joy, but if it's pain, it's your job to protect us from that. And I say, look, it's not my job to protect you from the Holy Spirit. It's my job to try to bring the conviction of sin to you so you may be saved. Because without the conviction of sin, you can't be saved. Has anybody ever said that to you? Until you face the awful law of God. And see the hopelessness of your heart. You can't be saved. Can I say that here? Can I say that here? The real answer is... Who said that? Did you say that? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The real answer is you must. What am I? Am I your servant or God's servant? And you should respond the way Heather did one time when she was a little girl and I asked her, who do you love more, mommy or daddy? She looked from me to her to me. She said, that's a bad question. (laughs) It's both. 
I'm your servant. I'm God's servant. But if I serve you in such a way that I don't serve God, I am worthless to you. Worthless. I remember years ago calling up the predecessor at that former church to ask him for advice as I served as the pastor. And we talked about a number of things. And then it came to the issue of men and women and authority. And he had been a proponent of women holding the position of elder and pastor in the church, but they had not yet taken that step. And he told me, he said one other thing. He said, you know, he said, since you're now no longer willing to ordain women to the eldership or the pastorate, because for years I did ordain women, and I did have women elders, (laughs) including at Scott's church, um... Since you're no longer willing to do it, one thing you have to realize is you're going to have great trouble administering to college students because the college students won't listen to that message. You know what I said to him? I said, you know, I like to think that by the time a college student gets done with a whole week of being propagandized, endless, endless mantra of liberal rhetoric from every single voice. There's no diversity on the campus of IU. (laughs) That they're bored and want to hear something different. And I like to think that the pulpit of God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a place that maybe there's some freedom to say something different. And I like to think that souls that are on fire and alive, that have not yet been stultified completely and deadened, will spring alive and will beat and will recover their manhood and womanhood and will have faith. And so this is a grand experiment. Can there be a church that is not the rhetoric and propaganda of little minds who have never studied and never read history. And so they just parrot the op-ed pages of the New York Times. Can there be a place? Can there be a church that has the freedom of the preaching of the word? Can there be a church where a man under conviction of sin can cry aloud? Yeah! A place where we live, a place where we are particular persons, where this one who responds by silent tears, and this one who moans, and this one who claps, and this one who just stands there agaga, the diverse, the grand tapestry of man. Used, you understand, inclusively. Can there be a place where a psalmist can say, my voice rises to God, and we can hear a voice rising to God. And I will cry aloud, my voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. Can there be a place 
where that message is a comfort to godly people because they know that experience. And finally, somebody says, this is a part of the normal Christian life. It doesn't have to have a death, an adultery. It doesn't have to have a rebellious child. It can just be that the, the weight of this world and of our sin. And we lie in bed at night and we cry aloud and we're human. You know, one of the things that just bothers the dickens out of me is how in this world the most popular word today when it comes to anything of significance is the word passion. Do you realize that the minute a word is used everywhere, it's because the word is dead. And all of you are so hungry for something other than the deadening drugs of entertainment and video games and satiation with food and as much as you could drink and cars that are warm when you drive them and garages that keep the frost off your your wind. I mean, complete and utter boring lives. And so what does everybody talk about? Passion. And you're so jaded in that certain area of life, which I won't mention, that even there you can't have passion. And so you're so desperate to find passion somewhere that worship is passion and sports are passion and, and, and carpets are passion and colors are passion. You know, everything today in America is passion. Everything is passion. Passion. He's passionate about his blackheads. He's zealous in popping them. I mean, look, you laugh, but I tell you that those words could easily be heard in our world today because everybody's so jaded and bored and comfortable and decadent. That we have no passion. None. And so here you come into church, and one of the jobs of the worship of the people of God is to awaken you. Does this make sense? And so we never talk about passion here. Never. Never. Why? (laughs) Okay, you ready? We don't need to. We have it. We're awake. We have eyes that see. We have ears that hear. Our sense of smell is alive. We have rhythm. And it's not gyrating, disgusting, gyrating hips. And when we get in bed, we have much better you-know-what than any man who hates God. Because we're not jaded anymore. We've forsworn the images. And now it's our wife that captivates our heart. So we don't need to talk about passion. 
Because Scripture has wakened us up, and the Holy Spirit has given us what? A new heart. And how is that heart characterized in Scripture? It's a heart that is sensitive instead of a heart that is what? Stone. That's the antithesis that Scripture presents us. On the one hand, there's a feeling heart, and on the other hand, there's a dead heart. The dead heart is because it's inside a man who is a slave of Satan. And Satan takes away your sense of smell, your sense of vision. He takes away your touch. He takes away your hearing. And then he takes away your conscience. And then you're dead. You're a dead man walking. And what are Christians? Yikes. We smell everything. We see everything. We hear everything. We feel everything. And we have rhythm. And it's overwhelming, guys, because this is not heaven. A few weeks ago, I talked about the pain of listening to confessions of sin. And I said, I don't want to hear any more about your sin. And then I went last week and I said to you, that was a wicked thing to say. Because one of the principal joys of the life of a pastor is hearing your confession of sin. Now, why is it joyful for me to hear your confession of sin? Why? Well, because what a pastor lives for, what a pastor should live for, is to see the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's absolutely no way to attribute the confession of sin to any human anything. The only way it comes is because the Holy Spirit works. And so it's like, it's like a fireman. You know, guess what a fireman loves? Fire. <laughs> because, I mean, John, John Alverson, right? He's about to leave. He's been here visiting, right? And he's a Marine, not Air Force. Okay? Sorry, but I had to say it. <laughs> and so I'm talking to John. He's about to have another deployment. And I say, so, like, do you think that all the politics are going to influence what happens? And we talk about that a little bit. And then he says, you know, every guy in my what? What would it be? Huh? Platoon, whatever it was. I don't know what the word was that he used. He said, every single one of us to the last person. But that's not what he said. To the last man. Every one of us wants to go over. And I said, really, why? He said, well, he said, because that's what we've trained for, so that's what we want to do. And so pastors have trained and studied and prayed for you to come under conviction of sin so that you may have a heart that's alive. And so can I just be very clear in saying that I have no greater joy than when you confess your sin to me? Now, it's hard, and it's partly hard, because every time you confess sin to me, I see my own sin more, and I don't like that. (laughs) Okay? But I'm sorry I said it. I've apologized twice, and if I have to do it three or four times, I will. There's no greater privilege than to hear a confession of sin. And so we come to this psalm, and we see this man is absolutely weighed down with his sin. 
my soul refused to be comforted. And then listen to verse 3. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. Now, why would he be disturbed when he remembered God? Well, God is disturbing. Again, can we please be honest with each other? If your God is not disturbing, you have an idol. Every record we have in Scripture of a man coming face to face with an angel that just comes from the presence of God. The man is terror stricken. And he was just in the presence of God, you know. And then you think of Moses. Moses is in the presence of God. He comes among the people of Israel. And what do they tell him to do? They say, would you please put a veil? We can't bear it. God is disturbing. And so here he is, he sees his sin, he looks at God, and he finds God overwhelming. When I remember God, then I'm disturbed. And when I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. You read the old dead guys on this verse, and what they say is that the love of God, the the, the trait that is so precious to us, the love of God, that this trait, when this experience of a Christian comes, the trait of love is absolutely overwhelming to us. Why? And what you want to say is, well, because it's so beautiful. But that's not what they say. What they say is because you're absolutely convinced there is no hope for you. And you see his love and you think, I'm damned. There's no hope for me. I'm hopeless. This is the experience of Christians. And you don't have to have your husband dying. You don't have to have your wife committing adultery. You don't have to have lost a job or have a rebellious son. This is the life of Christians. So that even the character of God becomes something that's overwhelming to us. And that's the love of God. And then you move over to his omniscience. That he sees everything. That nothing is hidden from him. And then you move to his omnipotence. The strong arm of God. Did you notice that mentioned here? And so now you're done. Woe is me. This is the life of a Christian. Woe is me. I have seen God. He's holy. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's transcendent. He's immutable. And he's love. And I am undone. There's no hope for me. And listen to him. You have held my eyelids open. I'm so troubled I can't speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. So we're not getting hopeful here. 
we're still in, in, in the slew of despond. Because what is he pondering? Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? And when you're in the position where you are pondering these questions, it is God's kindness to you. It's not him being mean. It's not him denying you the victorious Christian life. This is the victorious Christian life. That's why it's in Scripture. That's why you're to pray it. Because the path of sanctification is difficult. It's hard. It's hard. And you think, oh, please, spare me. You know how I refer to the dead guys. Well, one dead guy is writing about this, and he says, I myself have often suffered such terrors. Do you know the name of that man? Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Verse 10, then I said, it is my grief. And remember, I translated my infirmity or sin. I don't want to make corrections to translations, but when they translate it here, grief, they, they kind of leave behind the sense of moral failure. They have the emotional pain, but not the moral failure. And so what he's saying here is, part of my failure and sin is that I thought the right hand of the Most High had changed. Okay? My infirmity. It is my infirmity that the right hand of the Most High has changed. He hasn't changed, but he says, part of my weakness. You remember in Psalm 73, where the psalmist says, if I had spoken thus, I would have basically sinned. And yet he's just gotten done speaking thus. (laughs) You know? And so we can be aware of our sin and our faithlessness in the middle of our sin and faithlessness and say, now I know this is sin and faithlessness, but has the right hand of the Most High has changed. All right, so that's the sense of this. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. And so what's going on here is he's saying, you know, look, that's the condition I'm in. And so I'm going to remember the deeds of old, right? That's what he's saying. And so he's, he's like the dog in uh, The Fugitive. The hounds, you know, after the fugitive. And they lose the scent. And when they lose the scent, what do they do? Oh, you see? They lose the scent. They back up until they catch the scent again. And then they go in a different direction. And so what you see the psalmist doing here is backing up, smelling. And then seeing where he got off the track right? I'll remember the deeds of old, right? Now, what does he remember? Well, that begins after the Selah, the break, 
Verse 16, the waters saw you, O God. Now listen, they're Jews. And the waters saw you. Now the waters could be one of two things. Clearly the waters are the ones that inspired that glorious woman's contemporary Christian music piece. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. But of course I'm making a joke. Because you know doggone well that today in contemporary Christian music, the inspiration is not going to be the death of the Egyptians and their horses. No. No animals were hurt. (laughs) I mean, we're just so pathetic. Think about this. He's in despair. He feels hopeless. And when he reverses himself to pick up the scent, where does he go? Where he goes is to the waters. And those waters, you know, can only be one of two things. They are either the Red Sea closing over the enemies about to slaughter the Israelites. Or, (laughs) take your pick. Or, Noah in the ark, watching as the waters wipe out the entire race of man. Take your pick. And this is the comfort. Now, right now, you're all sitting there thinking, you know, well, that doesn't comfort me. And I say, why not? And you say, well, God has mercy on the wicked. I'm wicked. My neighbor is a better man than I am. I can't take comfort in the death of unbelievers. And I say, you know, one of the reasons for that is that you've never suffered at their hand. you imagine being a slave, having your wife sold, having your children pulled from your arms, having your master take your wife into his house? And then, not delighting in his death. And you say, oh, there's nothing like that in Scripture. And I say, it's all through Scripture. The righteous... Both love and call for God's judgment. That's the nature of manhood. Right? Don't you all remember how that movie I've never seen begins? And I wouldn't look at it because I don't think we should desensitize ourselves by looking at movies like this. But my understanding is that the beginning of Saving Private Ryan has what? What's the very beginning? My understanding is that in that movie, and maybe it's not the beginning, you have a sniper, right? Who recites a certain scripture text. Has anybody seen this movie? And am I right that that's in that movie? And would you please recite for me what the sniper recites? Huh? Did you hear that? <laughs> okay, the Lord is my shepherd, but say it again. And then 
he pulls the trigger. Do you understand? You will never be evangelistic and you will never be gospel-centered and you will never be missional until you see that it pleases God to consume the wicked. That it is his glory to consume the wicked. And that's what motivates you to love your neighbor and plead for their souls. Do you understand this? You're supposed to take delight in all the traits of God. You're supposed to take delight in his holiness and judgment and wrath and delight in his love and mercy and long-suffering. And seeing this, you're to be what? The Bible says a reconciler. The Bible says that because of the reconciliation that we have experienced, that we are to go into the world proclaiming the gospel to those who soon will be God's judgment. And so this man who is suffering under depression, who sees no hope, comforts himself, are you with me, by turning around like a hound. And he's... And then he says, and then I saw the waters. You remember in Psalm 73, it's, it's a parallel. Same kind of thing. He's talking about how fat and content the wicked are. And he says, you know, I'd almost fallen into it, and then I saw their end. How is it that that's what's a comfort? I saw their end. I saw that their feet were on a slippery place. In other words, he saw the coming judgment of the wicked, and that is what saved him from despair. And see, the reason we can't identify with that is we are completely uncaring and unconcerned about the blood that flows across the the world. We don't care about the widow. We don't care about the orphan. We don't care about the blind, the deaf, the dumb. We don't care about the prey, and we don't care about the wicked that has the prey in his mouth. We don't care about our brothers-in-law, our sisters-in-law. We don't care about our children. We don't care about our parents. All we want is what? Peace at all costs. We're heartless, we're cruel, and the only thing we could ever talk about is love and passion. (laughs) And so we read this and we go, does not compute. Listen. What comforts him when he's in despair and he decides to go back and get the scent? He stops and picks up the scent again. When? The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. And what are these waters? You're going to want to turn them into the waters of Noah that bear the ark up. But the waters that bear the ark up are the waters that kill the whole human race. And so let's forget that, because that's not the waters that are being talked about. The waters that are being talked about are the waters of the Red Sea, where they were about to be consumed with the wrath of Pharaoh and his troops. They were helpless, and the waters came and wiped their enemies out. And so his scent that he goes back to pick up is that moment when God sends the waters And they're the waters of judgment and eternal damnation. And that's what gives him hope. (laughs) You know, and you're looking at me like, does not compute. (laughs) 
And that's because we're a bunch of fat, decadent Westerners. We don't know death. We don't know blood. We don't even see our cows butchered. We don't even see them milked. The waters. You saw you, O God, the waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. And we think of Nathan and Jonathan out target practicing. (laughs) Well, that's what arrows are. So maybe we should translate it to bullets and the bombs. And then you have an idea what lightning is like. You know? And all of a sudden, here's what happens. And I see it happening before my eyes. All of a sudden, every man here is able to worship. And every woman is going, well, he's gone off the reservation. He's not just trying to please the women of the church. Obviously, the elders' wives aren't in charge here. (laughs) And every man here and every little boy understands. Because this is what they grow up playing. They have that part of the image of God that the woman doesn't have. You give woman a gun, and she turns it into a doll. You give a doll to a son, and he turns it into a gun. (laughs) The waters. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. And what's the sound? Tweet, tweet, tweet. No, the sound is either thunder which, remember, Jonathan Edwards said before he became a Christian, tormented him, after he became a Christian, comforted him. Or it's the sound of a tornado, which is like the sound of a freight train. And you need a subwoofer to hear it when you're trying to, like, copy God. The arrows, the guns... The bullets, the bombs, the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. So it wasn't enough to just say thunder. The thunder has to be in the whirlwind. (laughs) The lightnings lit up the world. No. (laughs) You mean that God does things loudly and bigly? The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. I'm almost done. But i got to have a little sort of thing on this footprints thing. Okay? Because now, all of a sudden, all the women think, well, this is where we get something we like. Right? You've all seen that little poem. Right? And I look back, and... How does that go? In the hardest times, there was only one set of footprints. And it warms our hearts. Because what that means is that God is carrying us in the hardest times. Now, I love women. And so I'm not going to uh, make fun of that. Because... It is true, for the same reason, I will not make fun of, I came to the garden alone. Because they're a comfort to us, and they're true. 
But that's not what's being spoken of here. Do you know what's being spoken of here is Deuteronomy 29.29. And don't worry, it's the only verse I know the reference for in all of Scripture. (laughs) That and John (laughs) 3.16. But this one I got in my brain because it has a a pneumonia device that goes with it. (laughs) Stephen is our master of references and it just infuriates me. Ann Wagner's the best? Tim, oh yeah, Tim, yeah, but don't, don't build Tim's head up. He already has his brother doing that to him all the time. That was a joke. <laughs> okay, so now listen, De- Deuteronomy 29 says this, 29-29, it says what? S- somebody say it. The secret things belong to the Lord. That's the meaning of this where it says that you couldn't see his footprints. What it's saying is, your footprints may not be known. It's saying that in situations like this, it's not that we're comforted that we only see one set of footprints, okay? It's that we are disciplined by not seeing God's footprints. Do you see this? And this is part of God glorifying himself that he will not let you know why you were molested. Do you understand this? He will not let you know why you have a husband who can't be trusted. He will not let you know why you married the man that you knew you shouldn't marry. He will not let you know why your child has spina bifida. Now, I'm not saying that there will not be things that will appear to you as reasons, because God in his mercy does sometimes open our eyes to see some of his reasons, but you will not see the footprints of God. Martin Luther, on this text, says that there was a time when he was desperate to know God's purpose in something, and he was importunate in his prayers, asking God to reveal. And then the message came from God, I will not tell you. Isn't that wonderful? I love the fact that my mother would constantly say to me, because I say so. That is why. It was a theme with my mother. But why? Because I say so. That is why. And so now, as a pastor, I'm prepared to give God his freedom. Because I think, because he said so, is enough. I don't feel the need to explain where evil came from. Because he says that he is not the author of evil. And that's enough. I'm just so happy to be able to say, because he said so. And that's enough. And so he says, he says, and your footprints may not be known. And then the final verse, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so there we know what? We know that we're talking about the waters of what? The Red Sea. Because the image is is the clouds, the thunder, the lightning, the death, everything consumed, the might of God. And then it says what? It says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. 
And so finally, we get the good thing, right? We're finally done with all the nasty stuff, and we're at the good thing, right? So how does God lead us like a flock? How does he do it? And of course, because we're decadent and fat and satiated and desensitized, we think that God leads us like a flock as we all have pictures, because we've never actually seen it. You know, and so here's the shepherd, da 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 da, and in lines, all headed in the same direction, content are all the sheep, and he walks along with a rod and a staff, <laughs> whatever that's about, <laughs> but it's comforting. Thy rod and thy, st- thy, rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And how we in America today can act as if that's a sweet thing is beyond me. Because you know what the old dead guys say about this verse? He led his people like a flock, that Moses and Aaron did it. What he says is that when they're out in the brambles, caught and unable to escape, that God sends Moses and Aaron to rescue them from their sin. Now, all of a sudden, you don't feel quite so wonderful about it, you know. It's like, I thought it was going to be nice here. And it is, if you sin. And if you don't sin, it's not nice. But if you sin, then you now know that his rod and his staff comfort you. And when you're in sin, God will come to you and rescue you from the brambles. Right? Except wrong. I snookered you. Because I didn't quote it right. (laughs) Because what it actually says is that God sent Moses and Aaron. And see, that's your problem. You look at me and you go, another fat Western. I don't want to be rescued by him. I'd just like God to do it directly. And so I'm going to have private devotions. (laughs) You know? And that way I can maintain my dignity. But he sent Moses and Aaron. And you say, well, yeah, but that was a long time ago. I say, okay, fine. He will not have the church as his mother may not have God as his father. I quote Calvin and I say to you that Calvin says that until you die you cannot and may not stop nursing from the breast of this mother and being disciplined by her. (laughs) Now listen. Isn't that wonderful that God gives us pastors and elders and older women who rebuke us and encourage us because we're in the brambles. And we have them stoop over, and they get stuck where we get stuck. Because you can't untangle them from the brandles without yourself getting thorns that that, that cause blood. Now listen, I just preached to you a psalm. And I hope your whole world is turned upside down. I hope all the lies are out of your brain now and all the truths are fixed there. I hope the Holy Spirit confirms my word. I hope you go home like the Bereans and study to see if what I said is true. 
And if it is, I hope you begin to treat Stephen and Lawrence and David. And I just go around this congregation, your elders and their wives, the older women, I hope you begin to bleat out, crying out to them, help, help. Because if you don't, then you will never say what the psalmist says, which is he thanks God that God is a shepherd who leads the flock tenderly with Moses and Aaron. And you say, well, if we had a tender shepherd, I'd be willing to be led, but you're not so tender. I say, yeah, it's that problem with rods and staffs. (laughs) Are you kidding? Do you know what it takes to lead, Alan? You think I can just, like, shove a dandelion under his nose and he'll follow me? Yeah, I am talking about you. (laughs) I mean, think, look around at you. How about Micah? How about Thomas? (laughs) How about David Wegner? Every single one of us is difficult to lead. Women are difficult through their weakness and men through their strength. Right? So that's the psalm. And the end is God's kindness in this life leading us tenderly as a flock with his shepherds. Now I want to end, and I'm hoping I'm not going to cry because I lost it in the first service when I did this. If I cry, it's because I rarely read my father to you because I just cry. All right? But I'm going to try to read my dad to you, my daddy, okay? I was privileged to have a father who didn't lie. And he paid no respect to anybody because they were famous or rich or published. My dad just didn't give a rip who was famous. And he wouldn't lie. And so when my dad taught or preached or was home with me, I felt like I was safe to be a sinner and to, and to see the grace of God. Because why? Because my dad didn't lie. He was like Asaph. He didn't lie, did he? He didn't lie. My dad didn't lie. My dad thought that instead of copying all the contemporary Christian music and all the sermons of the world and all the books that are being written today, he should confess his sin like Augustine did. He should confess his sin like David did. He should admit his weakness. He thought it was manly to admit his weakness and sin. And so one time when he was writing this article, he'd write every month and talk to us about what he was going to write and what he had written. He was going to write, but he didn't want to do it. He was going to write taking to task a man who was saying it's fine for Christians to remarry when they have unbiblical divorces. And we said to him, Dad, you need to write on that. And he said, I don't want to do it because if I do it, then everybody's going to attack me publicly. And so here's a psalm of wandering, okay? Lord, you know I'm such a stupid sheep. I worry about all sorts of things, whether I'll find grazing land, still cool water, a fold at night in which I can feel safe. I don't. I only find troubles, want, loss. I turn aside from you to plan my rebel way. 
I go astray. I follow other shepherds, even other stupid sheep. And then when I end up on some dark mountain, cliffs before, wild animals behind, I start to bleed. Shepherd, shepherd, find me and save me or I die. And you do. Would you please be fathers like that to your sons? Would you be Christians like that with God? Would you be Christians like that with your elders and your older women? Would you bleat? Bleat? Or else you die. Okay. We have to end with worship. We can't end with me crying. Okay? Once we end with worship and I give the benediction, we have to be really disciplined because I haven't been. And we have to get things done quickly because otherwise the children are going to be through the roof. Okay? So let's pray. Ban, come forward. We have to end with worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this book which doesn't lie about the normal Christian life. Father, we plead with you to have mercy on us as we bleat and to show us your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.